Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Hang Up and Listen is brought to you by Credit Karma. Do not pay for your credit score. With Credit Karma, you can get your credit report right now absolutely free. Just visit creditkarma.com slash save to get started. There are no strings attached and no credit card is required at creditkarma.com slash save. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of January 25th, 2016. On today's show, we'll talk about the Broncos' tight win over the Patriots, the Panthers' blowout over the Cardinals, and what kind of game we can expect in Super Bowl 50. Dave McMiniman, the Cleveland Cavaliers beat reporter for ESPN, will be with us to assess the team's decision to fire head coach David Blatt. And finally, we'll be joined by Sports Illustrated's John Wertheim to discuss allegations of rampant match-fixing in tennis. Mike Pesca is out this week, but joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, author of the book's Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Hello, Josh. So we both walked backwards through snowdrifts, kind of growing up in the American South. It's really rare for me to have the opportunity to say that, so I'm going <laughs> to take advantage. Um, we have, like, kind of a screwed-up show today. Stefan lives in uh, a uh, less met- metro-adjacent area than I do. It's so. in the city. It's in the city, but don't you, pick me out to be. Some no, I'm just saying. Guy. I'm just saying you had more trudging today. I did have more trudging. I want to give you more trudging credit. So, um, Stefan will not be uh, with us for one of the segments, the uh, the tennis one. I was trudging. He was in the tennis segment. <laughs> if you can just imagine a deep trudge in the background as I'm talking to John Wertheim, then uh, it'll enhance your listening experience. But he's here now. We're both we're both together. Um, and on our bonus segment for Slate Plus members. We'll be joined by our colleague and sports fashionista, John Swansburg, to assess the trend of the shortening of basketball shorts. This will be a good conversation and one which we will have strong inseam related opinions. Important, important conversation. And uh, if we're lucky, Stefan will model 
a pair of his old OP shorts. Yeah. Uh, great for trudging. To hear this bonus segment and others like it on Hang Up and Listen and other Slate shows, please sign up for Slate Plus, um, and you can get a free two-week trial. So definitely sign up. It's slate.com slash hangupplus. We will not be hemmed in by this conversation. Well said. Excellent. Well said. Good post-trudge anecdote. Punning? Punning, not Punning. anecdote. All right. Let's start with football. And in the AFC title game, Peyton Manning and the Broncos beat Tom Brady and the Patriots. Would not really be an accurate way of describing what happened in Denver on Sunday. The Broncos won 20 to 18 thanks to their defense. Um, they knocked down Brady 23 times. That was the most in the NFL in any game this year. And I think Brady had only been knocked down 12 times Max, was, the, yeah. was the top of any game this year. They recorded four sacks. They intercepted him three times. Only two of them count in the official stats because um, the third interception was on a two-point conversion attempt that would have tied the game um, at the very end. Doesn't get on the official stats, but I saw it. A Denver dude did catch the ball in the air. So I'm saying it's an interception. Um, for the next two weeks, Stefan, all of the attention is going to be on Peyton Manning. He'll be playing in his fourth championship game at 39. He's going to be 40 in eight weeks. He'll be the oldest quarterback in Super Bowl history. Um, but as uh, my colleague Sharon Shetty pointed out on Slate after the game, he didn't do anything. He didn't really need to do anything to beat New England, and the best players on the field were his pass rushers uh, on defense for Denver, Von Miller and DeMarcus Ware. They were. This was not Brady Manning, though Jim Nance and Phil Simms talked incessantly about Brady and Manning because, as you know, you would expect them to do that. Um, you know, Brady wasn't that great. He was pressured throughout the game. It was it was really remarkable. He looked he looked almost he looked tentative. He looked scared almost. I mean, scared is probably the wrong word. I'm sure he wasn't scared, but he was pissed that his offensive line, I'm sure, was offering no protection. I mean, there were times when Von Miller just blew around the left end and was on Brady's back you know, or in his face before he had a chance to, to get, come close to releasing the ball. Well, Nate Solder is the left tackle for the Patriots, has been out for months. It's really the first time in NFL history that an injury has affected the outcome of a game. <laughs> uh, it was really remarkable yeah. to see that. I don't think Brady played poorly given how much he was right. pressured. And the fact that he was able to find Rob Gronkowski twice on that last drive, first on that amazing, you know, high-arcing, 40-yard throw down the field. On fourth and 10 from the 50. Yeah, and then on fourth down again, finding him in the back of the end zone. Both just incredible plays and reminders of why football can be a great and fascinating game. And obviously, the New England defense had to play well enough, so that mattered at the end. They only had 12 points at that point. But he you know, did do well enough in the end to at least get them in the conversation for the Super Bowl. <laughs> right. It seemed like the, there was an inevitability to the outcome that Denver was absolutely going to win because all of the excitement, the crowd noise, the defensive plays, the takeaways. And yet. And yet, I just kept watching the television screen going, they're only one touchdown and a two-point conversion behind. They're only a touchdown and a two-point conversion behind. There was a simultaneous inevitability that Tom Brady could tie this game and take them to overtime and that they could win. And we should probably, we haven't even touched on the elephant in the room yet, which is Steven Gostkowski missing <laughs> an extra point at the beginning of the game. Um, the first touchdown that the Patriots scored to... The first PIT that he's missed all year. First I don't PAT think he's missed, missed one ever. 523 <laughs> in a row. He had missed one as a rookie. 
So I think he was okay. he was he, he had made 523 in a row, which is an NFL record. So the Patriots had pushed. Um, they were, I think, the team that brought it to the competition committee that this idea that extra points should be longer, that it's too automatic of a kick. Let's inject some interest, and you know the Patriots do have per- perhaps an advantage there because their kicker is so good. He's one of the top very few in the league. It didn't work out for them in this game, and Kaskowski took all the blame afterwards, or wanted to take all the blame. He said, I lost the game. Oh, God. Come on. <laughs> it was 7-6 to six when this happened. Games change based on what happens afterward. The game would not have transpired exactly the same had it been 7-7. Seven to seven. Plus, Bill Belichick deserves, I think, a lot of blame here. He had opportunities to kick two field goals that would have cut the score to a one touchdown without an extra point, without a two-point conversion required to win the game in the fourth quarter, one with six minutes to go. So either he was so paranoid in his game management, or he really didn't trust Tom Brady to drive and score a touchdown again, or to have a second opportunity to score a touchdown late in the game versus Denver's defense, that he wanted to sort of roll the dice with six minutes to go and try to, to score right then and there. Um, and it was just weird to me that he passed that up to cut the score to, to a five-point deficit. Didn't strike me as weird at all in the context of how the game was going. So kind of a specific point about that, and then I want to make a broader point. You know, you were just saying about Kaskowski and the missed point um, that, you know, the game proceeds in an entirely different way. And I think based on what happened later in the game, those field goals looked like they would have been valuable. But he didn't have that information at the time. He didn't know that Denver wasn't going to go down and, and score. Yeah, but Denver at, at wasn't point, driving at ease and Manning wasn't throwing the ball comfortably or okay, effectively. And, and that's the other point. New England definitely wasn't driving at ease. And so I think... I At the time, I thought, you know, they need to go for this every time that they went for it. Because given the fact that Brady was hit more than any quarterback was hit in an NFL game all season, I certainly would not have predicted that they would have gotten as many cracks at the end zone at, at the, the end, end as they did. And so I think the thinking was clear and it was rational, was that, you know, we're close to the end zone now. There's obviously no guarantee that... You know, the team will get back down there. And despite the fact that you said, you know, Denver wasn't moving the ball well, there's certainly no guarantee that Denver will not be able to drive the ball, get like a couple first downs and run out the clock. So I thought that that was a totally defensible move. I thought it was actually a good move. And what kind of all the discussion after the game made me think is, and I've made this point before, so I I apologize, but we just invest so much importance in these strategic decisions, these fourth down calls. And the story of the game was the Denver pass rush. And I just felt like all the conversation afterwards was about these kind of unknowable questions of, you know, should you have kicked the field goal or should you have? I mean, there are things that you can debate, which I guess makes it more interesting. You can't really debate was Von Miller good in this game because the question was (laughs) self-evident. But I just feel like it gives it outsized importance because the reason, the bigger reason that New England lost is because they couldn't block the Denver defense. Right. right. So now, moving forward to the Super Bowl and the Carolina Panthers, I think the, the storyline is going to be that Denver just won't be able to keep up with Cam Newton. They scored 49 points and absolutely demolished uh, the Arizona Cardinals. Um, 
should the conversation be, is Denver's defense good enough to neutralize Cam Newton or at least control him enough that the Super Bowl becomes incredibly entertaining? Yeah, I think that that is a fascinating matchup to me because if Tom Brady was more mobile, then this would have been a better, more interesting game and kind of strategic matchup. If you send Von Miller and DeMarcus Ware at Cam Newton and they're both pointed directly at him running as hard as they can and they're about to converge on him, that's no guarantee that Cam Newton is going down. He can escape. You have it's to a very wily coyote kind of situation yes. with Cam Newton. And you he have can just drop through the ground. They have to play more it, and it's not just that Cam Newton is super athletic and big and hard to bring down. It's that Wade Phillips, the defensive coordinator, and Gary Kubiak, the Broncos coach, they're gonna have to scheme for the fact that Newton can run. And so you just have to play more conservatively. You can't send rushers with the confidence that if they get there, then the quarterback is going, going down. Right. Um, and Newton's greatness is really the story of the Super Bowl, of, will be the story of this game. And, you know, with championship games in any sport, we invest outsized importance in these, you know, single events. And with Newton, I think it's going to be even more outsized because there is this kind of skepticism still about quarterbacks who run. Um, there is a skepticism about him in particular, about whether he's a great leader or whether he, like, smiles and dances too much. <laughs> Fucking dancing. It's just terrible, this dancing business. Why is he dancing so much? So there is going to be um, a lot of analysis and assessment based on how well Cam Newton can play against a defense that's the best in the league. And that even if, you know, one of the all-time best quarterbacks is playing against them, it's no guarantee of a good performance. So if Cam Newton doesn't play well, it doesn't mean he's bad. Uh, Seattle, Seattle had a pretty good defense. <laughs> he kind of torched them 31 points in, in the, the first half. In the first half. In the did. first half. Yeah, yeah, he did. Um, and as far as Cam Newton's personality, did you watch his postgame interview? I mean, he couldn't be more generous. I mean, he credited his teammates, the owner of the team, the fans, his coaches. Um, There's absolutely nothing negative about Cam Newton's personality at this point in his career. He has figured out how to be, and winning certainly almost every game that you play helps you do that, but he has figured out a way to appear genuine in his celebration and his enjoyment of the sport and respectful in these canned bullshit interviews with a microphone in front of you in front of however many million people are watching on television. Well, he definitely has figured out how to play the game both yeah. on the field and off the field. Like, he knows exactly what to say, and he, I think, has a winning personality and I think is widely beloved. I can say this, though, as somebody who roots, like, I, I have, like, strong emotional attachments to an NFL team, that being the New Orleans Saints, a team that plays in the same division as the Carolina Panthers. And if your team is losing to Carolina— they celebrate and they're so happy and enthusiastic that it is annoying mm -hmm. as a fan of another team. So I can see why, like, the average NFL team who has been, you know, beaten by Cam Newton finds him annoying. Right. They're, like, well, and pointing for first downs a... and everything. I mean, it's just like, that's not a reason to hate the guy. I right. think he's probably a, a very great guy. But in the, like, context 
of like on field things that annoy fans because they're just mad that their team is losing. He isn't like the 99th percentile of a guy that you don't like to see your team losing to. Right. Well, and there's a bit of the, the gloating going on, too. 31 nothing turns into 31-24. Your demeanor changes a little bit. So, you know, all of the, the get-off-my-lawn types, you know, celebrate like you've been there before are going to point to comebacks and potential comebacks. And th there was a potential for a comeback in, in the game on Sunday against Arizona. Uh, Carson Palmer had a terrible day. I mean, he threw some terrible interceptions. Against a great defense. Against well. a great defense as well. But yeah, I mean, that is going to, to rub you as a fan to watch you. Um, there are going to be people rooting for a little schadenfreude with, with Cam Newton. Um, two other things that I loved about this game. Newton's the other fact about Newton's postgame interview on the field. He didn't know that Denver had beaten New England. He didn't know who they were playing, which makes sense when you think about it. And if you understand how the NFL works, I mean, the, the Panthers were on the field during New England's final drive. And it's certainly a deliberate action on the part of coaches to insulate players, turn off the TVs, put your cell phones away. Nobody's tweeting five minutes before the game starts. But you're starts right, it just checking, sounded so But it weird. sounded so weird. Like he had been in outer space or in a cave or in, in a trench or something. Just that like he was the only person in America who cares about who's playing in the Super Bowl who did not know who was playing in the Super Bowl. <laughs> the other thing, 49-15, to 15, final score of the, the Carolina-Arizona game. First time in NFL history. Awesome. Yeah. Congratulations. Mark that one I know off the how list. I know how happy I that makes me. I'm very it. excited about that. All right, my final thought is um that I am just continually fascinated and they're going to be the broadcasters for um the Super Bowl with just how remarkably bad Jim Nance, Phil Sims and bad. Mike Carey are for CBS. I I believe Pesca is a defender of Phil Sims. Um so um maybe He's not can, here. Well, we can talk well we'll talk about it after the Super Bowl, but they're just bad across all possible axes of badness. Mike Carey just constantly gets – he just does not do his job, which is telling us as viewers as a former official like what the call is going to be on the field. And it just – I mean it's great for Mike Pereira because it shows – it just reveals how amazing he is. And when he was the only one doing that job for Fox, it was like, oh, maybe all – maybe this is an easy job. Maybe all refs are good at this. No, Mike Pereira is just amazing. And Mike Carey is I mean, is the, the glaring example on Sunday was the lateral that Peyton Manning threw to uh, Ronnie Hillman that was dropped and picked up by New England and sort of the whistle blew. The New England defender did pick up the ball and run into the end zone. And Carey was outright said it's it's not going to be overturned. That was a forward pass. And he was wrong. And like Twitter, if you had eyes, you knew that it was a lateral. And Nance also, I mean, it's been reported a lot, said that the Peyton Manning HGH thing is not a story and he's not going to talk about it. And no matter what you believe, it's it's obviously a story. That is just wrong. It is fa factually incorrect. And just He did mention it. He did mention it. Well, maybe he changed his mind. Congratulations, Jim Man Nance. My, my favorite exchange between Nance and Sims, Nance, is that what we have here today? Batman versus Superman coming out of an advertisement? And Sims said, we do. I'm just trying to figure out who's what. The defense? The quarterbacks? Phil Sims is often trying to figure out who's what. All right. Our sponsor this week is Credit Karma, which offers truly free credit reports, no strings attached, no credit card required. And it's truly free. There are no hidden fees. There's no free trial period where they'll start charging you afterwards. Free means free. You don't even need a computer to see your scores. Credit Karma has a free mobile app. It works for Apple and Android. You may notice that I've said the word free. I was going to ask a you, lot. is it free? 
it's quite free, Stefan. Is it free? It's free. It's free. Free. Credit Karma doesn't just show you a score and send you away. They actually break it down so you can see how your actions can affect your score. It's also free. And while you may have heard that checking your credit score can hurt your credit score, Credit Karma makes what's called a soft inquiry, which has no impact on your score. And it's all free. To try it out, visit creditkarma.com slash save right now to get your free report. That's creditkarma.com slash save. On Friday, the Cleveland Cavaliers were sitting at 30 and 11, the best record in the Eastern Conference, coming off an appearance in the NBA Finals in LeBron James's first season back in Ohio. And with Kyrie Irving back on the floor with James and Kevin Love, you might have thought that everything was looking pretty good for the Cavs, but that apparently was not the outlook in the Cleveland locker room. And so late last week, Cleveland fired its head coach, David Blatt, despite that finals appearance in an 83-40 and 40 overall record and a year plus. Blatt was replaced by his assistant, Teron Liu, a former player best known for having Allen Iverson step over him in the NBA Finals, and a guy who LeBron James apparently has a very good rapport with. In Liu's first game, the Cavs got routed by the Bulls. The new coach said his players were not in good enough shape to play at the fast pace he wants. Joining us now from outside the Cavaliers practice facility, um, where inside, I'm guessing all the Cavs players are doing suicides right now. It's ESPN's Cavs beat reporter, Dave McMiniman. Hey, Dave. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. All right. And thank you for uh, getting off the elliptical. I'm sure you've got to get in very good shape to keep up with this new fast-paced uh, Cavs team. Uh, along with Brian Windhorst, you wrote up a really comprehensive look at Blatt's tenure in Cleveland. And based on your reporting, it seems like even before the Cavs got absolutely destroyed uh, by Golden State last week, it seemed like the players had quit on Blatt that they didn't want to play for him anymore. And the beginning of the end might have come actually on Christmas Day when they played a much closer game against the Warriors. Is that how you look at things, that that was a turning point? Yeah, absolutely. That was the game that this team had been looking forward to since June, obviously. And you know, by our reporting, we found out that not only was that a, a tough locker room afterwards when they lost by six points, when they had all these expectations to win the game, but it it was a a toxic locker room because it wasn't just we're disappointed in the game we're just it was we're disappointed in the game plan we're disappointed in the substitution patterns and ultimately we're disappointed because we don't have faith in the guy who runs our team and David Blatt. This seems to be, have been a problem from the get-go, though. Blatt was, of course, a European coaching star. He was in Israel for many years. He coached the Russian national team. He had tremendous success in Europe, but he had never coached in the NBA. And the hiring of David Blatt by Dan Gilbert, the Cavs owner, seemed to be sort of an outside-the-box uh, decision, sort of intended to bring a guy in to a team that really wasn't expected to go anywhere, that had a bunch of young players. I hope we can put outside the box and scare quotes there. Yes. <laughs> it's something an owner would call outside the box. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, it, you know, there's a bunch of young players. But then LeBron comes home, they trade for Kevin Love, and suddenly this is a very, very different team. And from the beginning, as you report, LeBron James was kind of a dick. He, he didn't meet with David Blatt for a few weeks after he signed with the team, and you guys write, it was clear James's respect for Blatt was limited, and soon it became clear that Blatt assumed respect would be coming his way. So there was sort of a, a tug of war from the beginning here. Uh, tell us a little bit more about how that played out. Yeah, absolutely. He thought, and the Cavs ownership thought, that they'd be hiring David Blatt to be coaching Kyrie Irving, a core of Kyrie Irving, Tristan Thompson, Andrew Wiggins, and Anthony Bennett. And things changed dramatically on July 11th. 
of 2014, and it's never been the same since, obviously. But LeBron James said early on in, in last season, I remember Lindsey Zarniak from ESPN Sports Center was at a shoot-around before the Cavs hosted the Spurs in early November. And she asked him, you know, when you were considering what, what you were going to do, were you going to leave Miami, were you going to go back to Cleveland, would you go somewhere else, did you factor in who the head coach was in, in Cleveland? And, uh, you know, I, I actually texted Brian when we finished the piece and it was published that I wish we included this nugget. But he said, no, that didn't matter to me at all. And I think that says a lot because uh, a lot of players out there, uh, certainly a player who has championship aspirations, who the coach is, is right up there with who your teammates are. It, it, it goes hand in hand. And for that not to be part of his equation, I think that's the question mark here. Did LeBron feel like that was a better situation for him because he felt like he would have more clout and more power than the coach? It wouldn't be something that he had to worry about and he could instill his own view for the team and his own culture? Or was the the poll coming back to Cleveland so strong anyway and he felt like, you know, with the young talent and Kyrie Irving and Tristan Thompson and, and you know, the ability to land Kevin Love that they would just be able to figure it out. Uh, that's the question here for me. So over the last year and a half, there have been all, a lot of little moments that people can point to and some really big moments like in the playoff series against the Bulls where LeBron said after the game, like, oh, I just scratched the play where I was throwing the ball in bounds and, you know, I decided to shoot and the Cavs won the game. And everyone's like, yeah, that kind of makes sense. Like uh, LeBron should probably be shooting the ball in that situation. But there are also moments where it looks like on the sidelines, LeBron is the one drawing up the play and not blad and people are like you know everyone is a body language expert but you know when this news comes out um espn reports that lebron didn't know it was coming lebron says and his press availability i didn't know it was coming i was surprised uh adrian wojnarowski of yahoo basically writes a piece that says lebron and his team were behind this and so the, qu the question i have is like even if, Le if lebron is not holding the knife that was in david blatt's back i don't think that david griffin or um, Dan Gilbert would have done this if they didn't know with 100% certainty that this is what LeBron James would want. And so him kind of not, quote unquote, knowing that this was happening in the exact moment that it happened seems kind of beside the point. Yeah, I guess so. But at the same time, it wasn't a situation. It was so apparent to David Griffin, not just from his conversations over the last year and a half with LeBron or his observations of how LeBron had been reacting to David Blatt's coaching, but there's no allies for David Blatt in that, in that locker room. Now, maybe right. you would say Matthew Dellavedova, that's the one player who his <laughs> career blossomed because he was given a role by David Blatt last year, so he'll probably be forever in I feel like a Blatt-Dellavedova team would just be really gritty and could take them all the way to the finals. <laughs> just those two guys. <laughs> but, but beyond that, I don't think there's one player who... Uh, you know, even Kyrie Irving, who last year his platitudes were over the top in support of, of David Blatt. He was asked by reporter Chris Haynes after the game the other night against Chicago. Chris started his question by saying, you know, now Kyrie, I know you were close with David Blatt. This is in the scrum, on the camera, on the record, <laughs> 30 reporters around. And he goes, come on, man. Come on. <laughs> he stopped Dave, I wanna... asking the question. And then, and then his answer was, management made a decision. So I think that that said a ton to me. Yeah. Let's talk about the media angle here, because you guys had a very, as I said in the intro to the segment, a very comprehensive TikTok of 
everything that had gone on for the last year and a half. And it seemed like in, within the Cavs press corps, you guys were less surprised by this than those of us who are not around the team and don't know what's going on. So kind of how do you decide? This is a fascinating question to me as a journalist, but also as a reader. How do you decide when to report on what you know about what's happening in the Cleveland locker room? Because if you report it too early, then people can accuse you of saying you're trying to create a story out of nothing and that you just want attention. And if you report it too late, I think you run the risk of people being like, well, if you knew all of this was going on, why didn't you tell us? Yeah. And that's the push and pull that we deal with every day. I mean, I would say this, you know, ESPN, we were the first people to report last year that his job was in jeopardy and, you know, things haven't changed all that much since then. So it wasn't like we had missed this story. But certainly some of the scenes and, and some of the anecdotes that Brian and I included in that piece were, were things that we sat on. But the hard part about this whole equation was they were leaving the East by a wide margin, and they continued to be in first place. And we knew the affinity that the owner had for David Blatt. And it was, are they really, is this really going to happen? Even though there's a disconnect here, are they just going to, you know, hope for better times and wait to find that rhythm? Because that's what happened last season. You know, it was it looked so much doom and gloom, and then come mid-January, they found their stride, and they went on something like a 33-4 and four tear to end the season. And, and us as a press corps believe that, you know, that's quite possible to occur all over again. And if that does happen again, you know, this is a group that, as I guess any group, they, you know, allow that winning to breed confidence, and that builds upon itself, and all of a sudden, you know, minor things like a coach, uh, a coach's rotation or a guy not getting enough minutes doesn't matter as much to the greater good. So I, I guess that that's my explanation that, you know, the, the only time in this process for the last, you know, this season at least, where I felt like it was crisis mode was after the Golden State loss last Monday night, a week, week ago today. And part they of me blown out. was, you know, certainly circling the wagons and seeing if a decision was going to come down Tuesday morning. When David Blatt made it through Tuesday morning and, and took the plane ride to, to Brooklyn, you know, I assumed that he would be safe until the end of the season. Um, but, but of course, I was wrong. It certainly seems like there's a, you can point fingers at both sides here. Blatt came in with a little bit of a chip on his shoulder. He felt that his European accomplishments weren't respected. The players certainly deserve criticism for sort of treating him like a joke, like, Europe, like his European accomplishments didn't matter at all. And there's certainly a conceit laid on top of that, I think, that the NBA is overwhelmingly different from where this guy was coming from so that the players didn't even give him a chance. He also wasn't a former player. He wasn't a former player. Um, he's, you know, he's, he's built in a sort of Jeff Van Gundy way. <laughs> he's not the most imposing figure. He doesn't have a sort of gravitas about him. But he's a great basketball coach. And I think every coach that's risen to his defense has pointed out that this guy's a great basketball coach who deserves a chance in the NBA. Jeff Van Gundy went off on the national broadcast of the, the Bulls-Cavs game and blamed the media for hit jobs against David Blatt and for running him out of town. It doesn't seem like that's the case at all, but what this entire episode seems to reflect to me is the the sort of the status of, a, of the NBA, where players do have tremendous power, which is a good thing, because they do create the value. But at the same time, those basic concepts of respect and fairness and, and giving your coach a chance need to apply as well. 
Yeah, but I mean, first of all, to the in Gundy comments, it's widely known that coaches protect coaches to the right. nth degree, to a ridiculous proportion where logic and reason and facts don't even need to come into the equation. <laughs> um, so I, I barely even want to dignify that rant because he's gone on it before. Uh, we, we've heard that song before out of Jeff Van Gundy. Sure. And, and as for you know whether the NBA is this, I think you use the word mythical organization, it really, it's completely different than European basketball. Yeah, they're playing mm-hmm. basketball, but everything beyond it is as foreign as can be from what David Blatt had the credentials based on his success overseas. Uh, you know, the, the, the type of players he was dealing with overseas, you know, while I don't want to uh, rag on European basketball, it's very skilled, and et cetera, et cetera. But it's not the level of play that's in the NBA. He was not accustomed to that. And beyond that, the the backgrounds of a lot of the, the people that he would be um, – you know, charged with inspiring and bringing together are completely different than the guys he was used to dealing with overseas. And to the money. add a, a third part of the equation, these are the guys overseas. He was probably more highly compensated than most of his players. Now he's dealing with people making way more money than him, having way more uh, you know societal impact, pop culture impact. People, you know, LeBron James is one of the most famous people in the world, not basketball players in the world, famous people in the world. And so it takes a certain type of person to be able to kind of wrap your arms around all of that and make sense of it. All right, let's end with this thought. Maybe one way to look at this is that by bringing in Teron Liu, many-year NBA veteran, supposed to be a rising star as an assistant, friend of LeBron James from prior to when he was a coach, I think it takes all excuses away from the players. It takes all kind of possibility that you could say, oh, like, you know, management didn't do what we wanted and we weren't put in a position to succeed. When LeBron James comes in, comes to Cleveland, states the goal of bringing a championship back to Ohio, he's 31 years old. Clearly, this team needs to improve to challenge the Warriors and the Spurs. I think this is kind of a move from management, just like spending all this money that they're spending, that there will be no excuses that we are giving this team the absolute best chance to win. Even if David Blatt was as good of a coach or better, we're doing everything that we're supposed to do and that we can do. And that if we don't win, then, you know, you can't blame David Griffin. You can't blame Dan Gilbert. Yeah, they are certainly absolved of any guilt. Um, now, I think the players still want to see a little bit more, and I guess any player <laughs> would want even better chance. But come February 18th, the NBA trade deadline, they do want to see this roster enhanced in some degree. Uh, not you know a wide-ranging move like the ones that we saw last year in the middle of the season, but just give them a little more help. And then, and then of course, David Griffin's job will be done come February 18th, and then it's up to the players to execute and come together and play the way that David Griffin spoke about Ty Lue being able to bring them together uh, to do so. And, and, you know, as, as I reported briefly after the uh, news came down, I had a team source tell me that everyone's in the crosshairs now and the pressure's only going to mount from here. You know, in one sense, what an incredible opportunity for Tyron Lue to step into, a first-time head coach at 38 years old. On the other hand, good luck getting a good night's sleep for the rest of the year as, <laughs> as you, you know, mull over the responsibilities in your hands. 
All right, Dave McMenamin is uh, ESPN's reporter for the Cleveland Cavaliers. Um, he's been writing about David Blatt's ouster and Tehran Liu's hiring on ESPN.com, and you can catch him on ESPN, the television channel. Dave, thank you so much. Thanks, guys. I enjoyed it. So due to the aforementioned weather conditions in Washington, D.C., I am uh, here by myself for this segment, but I'm joined by the great, famous, classic, hang-up, and listen favorite, John Wertheim. John is the executive editor of Sports Illustrated, the host of SI's Beyond the Baseline tennis podcast, and he is the co-author of a book coming out next week. It's called This Is Your Brain on Sports, The Science of Underdogs, The Value of Rivalry, and What We Can Learn from the T-Shirt Canon. John, how's it going? Good, thanks. How are you? Good. So you're in Australia at the Australian Open. Um, there's a lot of talk about something that's even more significant than the T-shirt cannon, and that is a possible match-fixing scandal in tennis. Um, there's an investigation by BuzzFeed and BBC News that dropped right before the start of the tournament, um, and it said, I'll quote from a few different passages here, that tennis's governing bodies have been warned repeatedly about a core group of 16 players, all of whom have been ranked in the top 50, that there's evidence of suspected match-fixing orchestrated by gambling syndicates in Russia and Italy. And then uh, BuzzFeed and the BBC also identified 15 players using algorithms, using research of betting data, um, 15 players who regularly lost matches in which lopsided betting appeared to substantially shift the odds. So what has the conversation been like uh, in Australia around the players um, about this match-fixing? Is this kind of old news in the locker room, or did all of this come as a surprise? It's really rained. I mean, it, at some level, it's old news. It was funny. There, there was this murmur that something big is about to drop, and then, you know, a day later, it's this match-fixing report, and there was this collective sort of match-fixing. We, we've known about that for, for years. Yeah, of course there's match-fixing. In, <laughs> in other quarters, there, there was, you know, I, I would say some denial, and, oh, this is only relegated to minor players at minor events. It's funny because the initial report had no names attached, so nobody was sure of the, of the scale and scope of this. But it, it was very strange. I, mean, I think everybody sort of was bracing themselves for something totally new, and, you know, crystal meth runs rampant in tennis. And then <laughs> it was match-fixing without names, and there was a sense of, you know, yes, this is, uh, this is not desirable, but we've known about match-fixing for years and years. So it, it's been very strange. It's sort of the opposite of the, I'm shocked that there's uh, gambling here. Everyone's exactly. like, I'm not shocked at all that there's, that there's gambling. Um, it was really interesting to me, John, that BuzzFeed anonymized the data, so they publicized, they published it on, on GitHub, um, so other researchers could go in and look at these thousands of matches that they'd analyzed. They didn't attach players' names to it. But as other researchers wrote, they anonymized it extremely poorly, so that within hours, all of the names were out there. And so... My sense, just kind of journalistically, was that maybe they didn't have the courage of their convictions, and it's hard to think that they, they didn't know that the names would get out there. And so it struck me as very curious that they just didn't publish them themselves. Um, maybe there's a question of legal liability that their lawyer said that they shouldn't, and so they just put the onus on, on others. But did that also strike you as odd that they didn't publish the names, but they just came out a few hours later? Yeah, exactly. I, I don't know if this was, and, and I think, as you say, I don't know if this is, is British, fear of British defamation laws, but it was a little like, you know, 
P. Manning uh, may or may not have received HGH. Wait, that's too. Let's change that. Let's let's do Peyton M. I mean, it was very easy to reverse engineer some of the data and figure out who these players were. Uh, again, what was so strange is that I mean, I you know I get probably once a month. I get an email from one of these betters saying some pretty shady stuff is going down in Tashkent. You may want to check this out. And in some cases, there's there's an explanation. There's an injured player with an injury, or there's some set of sort of mitigating circumstances that would explain why you have these curious betting patterns. At the same time, when players' names appear again and again and again, something is is very dubious. At some level, I have some sympathy with these tennis administrators. I, mean, I feel like this is where we need Stefan to do his, his sportocrat voice. Um, <laughs> Stefan is on the way. I don't think he'll make it in time. I was going to say, can you uh, can we somehow get that, that spliced in? But um, It is I, not I possible! Think, there we go. Sold. Close enough. You, you know, so some of this damning data is, is certainly worth looking at, and, and that doesn't seem to have done particularly vigorously by the same token, I mean, Roger Federer came out there and said, name the names. And you want to say, no, don't name the names. I mean, you, you've, you've got to, uh, these suspicious patterns are not de facto evidence of corruption. And you come to someone and saying money is shifting in very counterintuitive ways. That case seems to have been made pretty solidly. I think the, the leap from that to match fixing, which is, you know, as, as serious an allegation as you can level of an athlete, that leap is significant. Uh, again, though, when, when some of these names have, have appeared again and again and again, you're left with the impression that this was not a particularly vigorous investigation. So it's, it's a whole, the whole thing is sort of strange. So I'm going to um, name a couple of the names, John. Um, one of the names that came up was Leighton Hewitt, and I'm going to name that one because he was asked about it in the press and he's denied it. He said it was a joke. He said it was ridiculous. And Ian Dorward, who is somebody who has for years on his website been looking at suspicious betting patterns and suspicious matches. And Ben Rothenberg um, looked at and used some of his reports in a piece he wrote for Slate last year about match fixing in tennis. Anyway, Dorward looked through the data on Hewitt and he looked at eight different matches and all of them, there was an explanation for why the betting patterns would have been suspicious and it didn't point at all to match fixing. One of them it was just the data was bad because um, the match had been stopped due to rain and the odds had been reset. So just what looked like a massive shift in the middle of the match was actually a shift after the match was almost over and um, had just been moved to another day due to rain. Other ones were because like Hewitt had had screws put in his foot or hadn't played for months. And so I think he really effectively showed the limits of what you can do. And Carl Bialik of 538 did this too in a really comprehensive, well-done article that just there's so only so much you can do by looking at data on a spreadsheet that what you really need to do is get video. Um, you need to get other kinds of documentary evidence. And I think for some players, they do have that. But just to put Hewitt on a list because of suspicious betting patterns, I was 100% convinced that that was BS. Yeah, exactly. And I think everybody's sort of caught in between. You don't want to minimize this. And, it, and I have no doubt you talk to players and a anecdotally, sure, this thing goes on. There are 120,000 tennis matches a year that you can bet on. It would be naive to think every single one of those was played on the up and up. On the other hand, is the sport systematically, I mean, is there's this sort of widespread contamination. I, I think that probably goes too far. Um, I mean, I think you, you mentioned video, and I think that's tough as well. 
because you know well, Novak Djokovic committed a hundred unforced errors in a match at the Australian Open and still won. Very hard to discern what's an unforced error and what's an intentional unforced error. So someone else said, you know, look, we, we need to see banking records and we need to see wire transfers. And, yeah, sure, but I'm not sure the organization that has an annual budget of barely a million dollars a year has that kind of power. The, the other thing, too, that I think this overlooks is whether or not there's, there's an element of duress here. I mean, it gets dark in a hurry, but... I, I do. I have heard enough stories to think that in some of these cases, this is not being done uh, with full volition by the players. Oh, interesting. Okay. Well, when I mentioned video, John, because in that piece I mentioned before that Ben Rothenberg did for Slate, he pointed to a specific match. There's a player named Denis Molchanov, and there is video from this match where he's literally throwing his racket at the ball, where it's just so comically obvious what's going on. On the other hand, Ben uh, did this story for the New York Times, came out on Sunday, co-written with James Glanz, about a mixed doubles match at the Australian Open, a gambling site suspended betting. Um, a Spanish player, one of the four on the court, David Marrero, didn't appear to be trying his hardest in this match. Um, and there was video in that piece, but it looked to me, I mean, this was more of a borderline case, John. Morero blamed his poor play on a knee injury. He said he wasn't particularly trying that hard because he didn't want to, you know, miss four or five months. And this was just a mixed doubles match. No offense to mixed doubles obsessives, but it's not something where there's huge prize money or a huge amount of, you know, anything at stake. And so I don't think you can come to any conclusion there. It seems totally possible, if not maybe the most likely thing. I don't know how to weigh the you know the percentages here that somebody in his camp leaked the information that he was injured and so that could have swayed the odds um it's just not you can't intuit anything with certainty from watching that video you can't intuit anything again this is a very serious charge you would be leveling and that happens all the time that the players here they're injured People see them on the on the practice court, and it's it's clear they're not going to be at uh, you know they're clear they're really in no shape to compete. But hey, it's mixed doubles. It's it's a couple thousand extra bucks. It'll pay for my flight. I'm just going to go out there. Very easy to see how someone could take that information and and bet in a certain direction. Everybody said that too. I mean, the the response in in a strange way, I, I think that sort of this case in mixed doubles highlighted. The dilemma here that people on site said, "Oh yeah, Morera, he's a great guy, and everybody knew he's, you know, his, his body was giving out on him, and he was just going to go out there and earn a few extra bucks." And I think one of the problems here is that, you know, you, you mentioned Dennis Molchanov, who is ranked number two forty-one. He's won four matches in his whole career. He's made thirteen hundred dollars in prize money so far this year. You can bet on the tiniest match. I mean, there are matches where literally the prize money might be a hundred bucks and tens of thousands of dollars can be wagered there. And I think tennis has done a really poor job of distinguishing sort of differentiating between matches and levels of matches. And you say there, there's corruption in pro baseball. And the first question is, are we talking about the Yankees? Are we talking about the, the St. Paul saints? And some of these matches and some of these players that have been named, there was, there was a player that just, pled guilty to match-fixing in Australia on Monday, and it's, it's a scandalous headline, and obviously given the events of this week, it, it's a very prominent headline, and then you look into it, and it's a guy who's won one career pro match at a tour level for his entire career. It's, it's a little 
you know, an, an independent league baseball player in Saskatchewan uh, pleads guilty to PED distribution. Th- this is this is all ugly stuff. And again, when the same names come up again and again and again, you're you're fair to uh, assume those those players are tainted. But I I don't think there's this systemic systematic match fixing problem that's contaminated the whole sport. All right, one one point, and then I want to ask you a final question. Um, of this list of 15 names, I bet you that maybe 1% of listeners of the show would know any of the people's names other than Hewitt. And, I, and BuzzFeed and, and the BBC noted that, oh, it says all of them have been ranked in the top 50. But that just kind of goes to show you how anonymous a lot of these guys are in the sport and what the economics are. Because it's not like golf, where the top 125 guys are all on TV every weekend and all making hundreds of thousands of dollars. Like even like if you're one of the best, you know, 200 tennis players in the world, you're not making that much money a lot of the time. And there is this bizarre asymmetry, as you talked about, where guys are playing challenger matches, where if you win, you get a couple hundred bucks and there's hundred, a hundred thousand being bet on it. And you can also bet on games and sets. And so if, if you want to maintain your integrity, quote unquote, you could just agree to fix a set with your opponent and then just play the rest of the match fair and square. So just the way that gambling is set up in the sport online now, it just seems impossible to stamp this out at the lower levels of the sport. And yet, I don't think we want people to come away from this thinking that players that they've heard of are engaged in this. I, that seems unlikely to me. But my last question for you is, I just don't I don't want people also to come away with the impression that the sportocrats of the sport have done a good job here because there was this match 2008 the Davidenko um match where it was very clear that there was the kind of documentary evidence that we've talked about that a fix was going on that gamblers had been contacting the players and it seems like the sport the tennis integrity unit whatever did absolutely nothing no, that's 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 the dilemma right there. That you don't want to minimize this. I don't think this has been particularly vigorously pursued. The sport has problems with inept management and with these cozy conflict of interests. So you don't you don't want to minimize this and say, oh, these these are only these backwater events in Tashkent. Let's not be silly. But by the same token, so, some of these reports about the the tainted sport and the notion that these these high level matches are being fixed is ludicrous. But I, I think you raise a couple of good points. First of all, match fixing does not necessarily mean dumping the outcome. I think some of this is going to be, hey, look, you drop the first set, I'll drop the second set, and we'll play out the third, which is un- unquestionably, uh, you know, that's that's tainted and unethical. There are just too many sets. Not dumping an entire <laughs> match. There are too many sets, exactly. If we all just played best of three. No, I mean, I, I think the other point about this, you're, you're right, Josh, is just the economics. If you're outside the top 100, you're you're really scrapping to pay for much more than just sort of trading and expenses. And you look at the amount wagered at some of these small-level events, and you look at the amount of prize money that these guys are playing for, and just as, as rational actors, it, it stands to reason that a couple of these guys can be swayed pretty easily. All right. Well, I had 100 to 1 odds at uh, an online sports book that you were going to say Tashkent twice. So um, <laughs> I'm just going to retire now. Um, you, you and I were you and I were in cahoots. There were some suspicious patterns <laughs> underlying that. Uh, John is the executive editor of Sports Illustrated, the host 
of SI's Beyond the Baseline Tennis podcast and the co-author of the book coming out next week. It's called This Is Your Brain on Sports. John, thanks for uh, joining us from Australia. Thanks, Josh. All right. I am happy to report that Stefan has returned from trudging. Hello, Stefan. Makes it sound as if I was here for the NFL, <laughs> went home, and then trudged back. We're all adults here. The, the listeners can know that we sometimes record the segments out of sequence, like if one of our guests is in Australia. So did that one first. Stefan was trudging. He made it. Then we did the rest of the show. Mm -hmm. So hello. Hi, Josh. All right. Now it's time for After Balls. And kind of apropos of nothing, our guest Dave McMiniman noted on Twitter the other night that the all-time steals leader in the NBA is a guy named Fatty Taylor, who along with Fat Lever is the best player in basketball history with fat in his name. If Fatty Arbuckle had played in the NBA, he'd be right up there, too. He'd be in the conversation. Definitely would be. Um, but Taylor, whose given name was Roland, but got the nickname Fatty because he was a fat baby, played on the Virginia Squires with Julius Irving, and he came up with uh, George Gervin's nickname, the Iceman. Fatty came up with the Iceman. Can you believe it? Um, Gervin tells the story this way. Uh, when I was in the ABA at age 19, I was probably 165 pounds, so I didn't sweat that much. We'd play, and everybody's uniform would be soaking wet but mine. After he saw that enough times, Fatty Taylor said, man, you're just like ice. Fatty Taylor, great nickname, great nicknamer. Fat Lever, his given name, Napoleon, I think, right? Fat Lever, great nickname, great first name. Yeah, had it all. What is your Fatty Taylor? Well, you may have, and I hope you did, read Chris Ballard's terrific feature in Sports Illustrated a few months ago about the men's basketball team at Caltech, the California Institute of Technology. The NCAA Division III Beavers ran up a 26-year, 310-game conference losing streak. They ended it in 2011 and then immediately embarked on a 55-game losing streak. The women's volleyball team at Caltech is 0-232 in conference play. The baseball team is 4-276 lifetime, including 0-231 in conference play, though in fairness, the baseball team has regularly won its annual game against the alumni, <laughs> which they do include in their schedule. This across-the-board futility last year prompted Michael Ambrose, the sports editor of the Chapman Panther, the student newspaper at Caltech conference opponent, Chapman University, to boldly call for the Beavers to stop playing intercollegiate sports entirely. Boo, hiss. Quote, the Caltech athletic program is a joke and a not very funny one at that, Ambrose wrote. Caltech should not be fielding athletic teams in the NCAA, and to do so is to set up its athletes for failure without any real hope of success, and Caltech is just wasting other teams' time as well as its own. Sport... Our hot-taking young columnist opined, and he did write sport, is about competition between evenly matched opponents, not between a team that never had a chance and its superior. No, it is not, Michael. Sport is about the thrill and joy of competition. It is about striving and determination. It is about never giving up. If the Caltech athletes, who study about 45 hours a week preparing for careers building and discovering shit, all right, they literally study 8 to 10 hours a day, according to Ballard's Sports Illustrated story. If they don't mind going 0-231 in conference, then neither should you, Michael, and neither should we. In fact, we should all be writing 8,000-word features about how Caltech jocks pull regular all-nighters studying for a control and dynamical systems 240 exam and still show up for practice most of the time and then lose 29-4 to to Pomona Pitzer in baseball. It is in that spirit that I now pivot to the Caltech of Scrabble, Josh. 
She's oh, a bye. woman on the East Coast named Jody who has been playing competitively since 2004. Jody lost all 15 games in her first tournament and route to an epic 62-game losing streak before in 2012 finally winning a game. But after tasting that sweet nectar of victory, Jody proceeded to one-up the basketball beavers and reel off a new streak of 56 consecutive defeats. That put her career record at 1-118. and And I have to stress here just how amazing that is, because, as you know, there's a fair amount of luck in Scrabble. At some point, Jody should have gotten simple letter combinations that would have allowed her to bingo a couple of times in one game or maybe play a newbie who didn't even know the two-letter words and win another game. But no, the number one Scrabble player in North America, David Gibson, has an ELO rating of 2,138, 2,138. I am 284 spots below him at 1,547. Not my peak rating, by the way. My daughter is up to 1,112. If you, Josh, played in a tournament next weekend and lost every game, you'd have a rating of 500. After her 1 in 118 start, Jody had a rating of 212. As far as I can tell, though, there are three players who have achieved even lower ratings. There's a woman in Calgary who's been playing and losing since 1999. She's rated 138. There's a Massachusetts woman who reeled off what has to be a record five-year 84-game losing streak, then won a game, and lost 12 more in what turned out to be her final tournament before her death. Now she could die in peace, right? Finally, there's a Chicago woman who's managed to win more games than Jody, spreading out five victories over 102 games, but she is rated a mind-blowing 61. Many, many people enter a Scrabble tournament, get crushed, and never return. Our Caltechy Scrabblers are remarkable because nothing short of death can stop them. They're a tribute to sportsmanship, to participation, and above all, to perseverance. They remind us, Michael Ambrose of the Chapman Panther, that we play sport because we never know what will happen. Caltech's men's baseball team won back-to-back games last season, finished the year with a program-best 2-35 record. The men's basketball team is 6-10 this season and above 500 in the conference, 4-3. And, and Jody, 1-118 Jody, Josh, she played in a tournament in Pennsylvania two weeks ago, and like the great DiMaggio, she ended her streak at 56 games. In fact, she won twice that day out of seven games, and for the first time ever, her rating went up by two points to 214. Play on Caltech, play on Jody. There's a very M. Night Shyamalan quality to that afterball. The, the, twist, <laughs> the, twist? Was, the twist was a, at once uh, bizarre, yet, yet somehow expected. And it, and it all came together at the end. It did. Yes. Josh, what's your fatty Taylor? So I want to thank Dan Diamond for alerting me to the sports story of the year, which was revealed as part of the St. Louis Cardinals hacking case. A quick recap of the hacking case. Back in 2013, Cardinals scouting director Christopher Correa started uh, intruding into the Houston Astros online scouting database. Uh, This was after Correa's former colleague Jeff Lunau left the Cardinals to become the general manager of the Astros. Correa reportedly was able to hack into the Astros system because he knew Lunau's password, which Lunau changed only slightly after going to Houston. So that's bad password security. Mm -hmm. Houston Astros general manager Jeff Lunau. But we didn't know quite how bad until Correa pled guilty to federal hacking charges and the feds unsealed documents that reveal what that password probably was. So uh, U.S. Attorney Michael Chu said in this court proceeding that the password, quote, was based on the name of a player who was scrawny and who would not have been thought of to succeed in the major leagues, but through effort and determination, he succeeded anyway. 
So this user of the password just liked that name, so he just kept on using that name over the years. So the judge, Lynn Hughes, heard that description. Her response was, that's admirable, and I like the scrawny people who succeed through their hard work. Love that judge. <laughs> Chu also indicated that the password had 123 at the end, which means that there is a 99.99% chance that the Cardinal Scouting Director hacked into the Astros database using the password xdyne123. So I naturally emailed Mike Scher, the creator of Parks and Recreation and the world's leading expert on David Eckstein's grittiness. He told me that he has never used an Eckstein related password, but is now regretting that decision. <laughs> I will c confess myself that back in the heady days of the mid-90s, I used a password that was the combined uniform numbers of the Mets pitching trio, known as Generation K, P Bill Pulsifer, Jason Isringhausen, and Paul Wilson. I'm very sad that Pesca is not here because I'm yeah. sure he had the same password. Um, my computer did just break apart and catch fire, unfortunately, when I used that password. Um, but my, that password, the Generation K password, and the x 123 not the worst one possible. So there's a company called Splash Data that has an annual report. They compile it from more than 2 million leaked passwords. So there are 10 uh, most common passwords of 2015. Number one, 123456, classic. Number two, password. Number three, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Number four, QRT, one, two, three, four, five, comes in at number five. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, comes in at number six. Number seven, football. <laughs> number course. eight, one, two, three, four. Number nine, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And number 10, baseball. So Poor baseball. <laughs> I mean, really, 50 years ago? <laughs> baseball was a far more secure pass, more frequently used password even, than football. It wasn't even 50 years ago. In 2014, more uh, people had baseball than football really? as a password. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Just goes to show you. Huh. Probably it goes to show you absolutely In nothing. 1932, horse racing was one. <laughs> Boxing was second. Baseball was third. Yeah. Information Week had a, had a story that goes into more, more detail here. Manowar123 <laughs> is my password. So... The Information Week list has the top 25 leaked passwords, worst passwords that are all sports related. So number one, um, and this was in 2014. So number one is baseball. Number two is football. Then here's the rest of the list, three through 25. I'm going to read these quickly. Hockey, Jordan, soccer, Yankees, Jordan 23, Eagles, golfers, Steelers, Rangers, Lakers, Arsenal, Cowboys, Tigers, tennis, NASCAR, Raiders, Angels, Red Sox, Packers, Giants, Washington football team, Gators, Dolphins. So the CEO of Splash Data says, being a super fan of any team or athlete doesn't mean you should put your identity at risk with easily guessable passwords. He doesn't really he said, say that. Though. He said it in that exact tone of voice. <laughs> it's okay to use your favorite team as part of a password, but you should try to make it unique by adding spaces or other characters plus numbers or other words to make the password harder to crack. An important lesson for all of us. Mm -hmm. But really, that's too complicated. Who's going to add a character to the end of Cowboys? Who has the time? So here are some simple tips to make your passwords more secure. Number one, take the first part of one common password and the second part of another to form a new, more secure word. So the first syllable of baseball is base. The second syllable of football is ball, which leaves you with baseball. Mm -hmm. Boom. Good idea. Done. All right. Instead of Jordan 23, go for Jordan 45, the number he used during his comeback from baseball. No, nobody, no, nobody will remember that. Nope. You can also put a player on a team he never played for. Jordan Yankees. Again, impossible to mm -hmm. crack. Or use reverse psychology. 
Stefan, let's say I'm like a well-known uh, New Orleans Saints fan. Mm-hmm. If if uh, that everybody knows that about me, I'll even say it even more loudly just to throw people off the case. I'm a big Saints fan. My pa- what if my password is I hate the Saints? Ooh, Ain'ts one two three. <laughs> there you go. Just no one would ever guess that. No one's going to guess that. And finally, I asked Mike Schur, um to identify what does he think the grittiest computer password could possibly be. He came up with a good one, and everybody get your your pen and paper out because it's going to take a while to write this down. Nobody could could hack it. It's just too plucky. Erstad, mm-hmm. Nebraska punter, Aaron Rowan, Juan Pierre, little things don't show up in the box score. Sack bunt, big hard Eckstein, one two three. I'm changing right now. <laughs> and there are some capital letters in there too. All right, we'd love your feedback. Not in Eckstein though, because he's so short. You know, well that would actually be counterintuitive. It you use capital be. letters for Eckstein. It would be. That would throw everybody off. All right, we'd love your. Just send us your passwords and any other feedback you have on what we talked about today you can email us at hangup at slate.com make sure to include if there are any special characters mm-hmm. we need to know that uh, we'll gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup subscribe in itunes you can find us by going to itunes.com slash slate podcasts when you're there leave us a comment and a rating become a fan on facebook facebook.com slash hangup and listen our intern is julia karen our producer is zach dinerstein the executive producer of slate's podcast is steve lichtai And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Hang up and listen as part of the Panoply network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Eckstein, Chaz Scoggins, Hall of Fame, one, two, three. What do you know about money? You might know a bunch, but you can always learn more with the Slate Money podcast. Join Fusion's Felix Salmon, Math Babe's Kathy O'Neill, and Slate's Jordan Weissman every week as they talk about the hot finance topics of the day. Subscribe to Slate Money on your favorite podcast app now. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.